Today, we are continuing in our uh, sermon series called, Is Christ Enough? Is Christ Enough? We're working through the uh, letter from the Apostle Paul to the ancient church in Colossae. And so we uh, are now finding ourselves in chapter 3, and today specifically we're going to be in verses 5 through 17. Um, So before we dig into that, and if you don't have a Bible, by the way, we'll have the scripture on the screen for you in just a minute, so you're good there. But let me pray for us, and let's ask the Lord to bless his word as we receive it and to help us understand it today. Would you pray with me again? Jesus, we thank you so much uh, that we get to open up your written word that you have given to us to tell us about yourself, to tell us about who we are, and to tell us about this world and the way you designed it to work. So would you give us wisdom and understanding as we look at these things today in Colossians chapter 3. Thank you, Lord, for your word. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So, Last week on Easter Sunday, we looked at Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. And I want to read those verses again real quick, just to show this is those four verses are kind of an introduction, if you will, into the argument that Paul is going to make today in verses 5 through 17. So let's let's look at verses 1 through 4 again as kind of the preface, if you will, to the sermon today. So he says this: He says, If then you have been raised with Christ. Seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth, for you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. So, to summarize what Paul's saying there, and, and you know, obviously we, we just did this last week, so I'm not going to rehash all of it, but when you truly trust Christ to be your Savior, you are united with Him completely and fully. So notice Paul says, Christ who is your life, Jesus becomes your life, right? And, and in, a very riddle, uh, in a very real literal way. Because what happens is when you are united to Christ, there is a very real legal change of position for you. And what I mean by change of position and the the legal part of that is that once before, right, when you were trying to figure out life on your own, when you were trying to essentially prove yourself in this world that you have what it takes, that you're a good moral person and, and you have the strength and the ability, right, before you came and knelt humbly before Christ and submitted to him as your savior, before that, you were in bad standing before God. And that's a legal issue because what that means is that all humans, right? The Bible tells us every single one of us, we are naturally inclined to not worship God, to not give ourselves fully to him, to not devote ourselves to him. And that is high treason, all right? That is treason against our king. And so we rightly deserve a criminal penalty. In fact, it is an eternal death penalty is what we get, right? So we are in bad legal standing because of our own sin before a holy, perfect God whom we rebelled and rejected, all right? So what happens then is when we turn to Christ, right? When we look at Jesus and say, I love you, I want to follow you. I want you to be my substitute. I want your record, Lord. I want you to be my savior. I can't save myself. When you humbly come to Jesus in that way, 
you are changed. There is a legal positional change. You go from being in bad standing before God, before the judge of all creation, to good standing. And the reason for that is not because you did something to impress him. And he thought, you know what, I'm going to move him over here now. No, the reason for that is because of the cross and resurrection of Jesus Christ, which we celebrated last week. And guess what? We're going to celebrate it again today. We celebrate it every week as Christians because it's everything to us. Because on the cross of Christ, Jesus takes our sin, right? He takes our sin on himself and dies for it, for you, in your place. But in exchange, in exchange, he gives you his record of righteousness. And so it's a glorious, amazing exchange, right? Jesus, the innocent, is taking your guilt, and Jesus, the innocent, right, is giving you, the guilty, his innocence, I mean, it's a, it's a complete swap. That's what it is. It's a complete exchange. That is what happened on the cross. And through the resurrection, the power of sin and death is forever defeated. That's the gospel. So here's what it means then. Paul is talking to Christians here, and he's saying, you have believed this. You have trusted this. You've trusted Jesus himself to be this for you. So now you are a new person. You're a completely new person. You have new legal standing before God, but in practically, you're a new person. Look what he says in 2 Corinthians, just to elaborate a little bit on this. He says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And then Peter, the apostle Peter in in 1 Peter 1, he uses this language of being born again. Born again. That's the extreme language that the apostles are using in the New Testament to describe what happens to us spiritually when we trust Jesus. The old is done. The new has come. Right? That's why we love baptism, right? Because when you go under the water, you're buried. You're done. That's the old you. It's over. And when you come out of that water, you're a new creation. You're a new person. So this means we have a new identity, a new identity in Christ. You see, this change in position should lead to a change in practice. The change in position with you now standing before God, clothed in Christ's righteous robes, not your dirty rags, but his righteous robes, that should change your actual behavior your actual life, your actual character. But here's the dilemma. Now, as a Christian, we are going to experience this tension in our lives. This tension, and what do I mean by that? The tension comes from us trying to live out our true identity in Christ. We know that we belong to God. We know that we love him. But now there's this tension in our lives because we are still living in a sinful, broken world and we're still living in our own sinful bodies. So we know that we're saved. We know we love Jesus. We want to follow him. But yet we still feel within us this gravitational pull towards sin. We want to do the right thing, but we also kind of sometimes want to do the wrong thing. What's up with that? 
Why is there that tension there? You see, what, what we're going to see today is the Christian life is a struggle, right? The Christian life is a struggle because we are citizens of heaven. That is your true home if you follow Jesus. But you are also still a citizen here on earth in a very practical, real way, right? We're not, we're not saying we need to walk around with our head in the clouds as if we're not really here. We are here. God has put us here on this earth for a reason and a purpose. You have a meaning and a purpose for wherever God has you right now. In whatever season of life you're in, at whatever address you are at, he is big enough and powerful enough to have you exactly where you need to be, even if you don't love it. But there's this real tension because we know we belong to heaven, yet here we are on earth. So what do we do about that? Christy and I, we like to watch uh, the show on CBS, Blue Bloods. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Tom Selleck, right? Yep. So uh, sometimes, occasionally on the show, uh, someone will go into the witness protection program, all right? And <clears throat> so don't raise your hand if you're participating in that. Uh, but if, <laughs> so someone will go into the witness protection program, and what do they get? They get a new identity, right? I mean, they get a completely new life. So everything about them has changed, right? They get a new name, a new address, right? A new job, a new persona. I mean, they, everything is different, okay? And so here's the thing, though. <laughs> Being a Christian is kind of the same, except I would say, actually, it's harder. You know why? Because in the Witness Protection Program, you get to move far away, right? You are in a different location. But when you come to Christ, guess what? You get a new identity, you're truly a new person, God gives you new desires to love him, but you're still living in the same place. You're still living around the same people, most likely. So it's difficult. It's hard for us to embrace this new identity when we look all around us and see the same old temptations and the same old sins that were there just before we knew Jesus. How do we deal with this? That's what Paul says in verses 5 through 17. The main point that we're going to see today is we must live out our true identity in Christ. We must live out our true identity in Christ. How do we do that? Well, Paul gives us a very practical two-pronged strategy here. We must put off the old self and put on the new self. All right, so let's talk specifics. All right, number one. Paul tells us to put off the old self. In other words, we have to eliminate sin. We have to eliminate sin in our lives. This is a proactive effort. Now, I want to be clear before we even read verses 5 through 9. The Christian life is progress, not perfection. Okay? There's only been one human being to ever be perfect. And you're not him. All right? Jesus Christ, who walked on this earth 2,000 years ago, lived a perfect life. What that means is it's not that he didn't have troubles or, or issues around him. What it means is that he chose to always love God, right? He chose to always obey God the Father and his wisdom and his will. So we can't do that even though we follow Jesus, even though we've been adopted into God's family, we still live in this broken world and we ourselves are not Jesus. So guess what? You're still gonna struggle with temptation. You're still gonna struggle with different various sins in your life. 
But over time, over time, if you truly love the Lord, if you truly want to follow Jesus and study his word and obey his teachings, if you love God, over time, you will see a progress in your life, not perfection. You're never going to arrive at this perfect version of yourself before you die. It's not going to happen. But you should see over time progress, and that progress involves looking at your life, analyzing your own heart, and eliminating sin through the power of the Holy Spirit. Look what Paul says now with that understanding. Look what he says in verses five through nine. He says, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. And here's some examples. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, or that word here means lust, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. And idolatry is what got us in this mess in the first place, right? Adam and Eve thought that they, they, they worship autonomy, right? And them wanting to be their own authority. And so they turned that into an idol and rejected God. And that's what we all do. So all of this, all sin at its root is an idolatrous problem. We're trying to love something more than we love God. Verse six, Paul says, on account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them, but now, so, so catch this. Hey, Christian, did you used to do these things? Yes, but now you follow Jesus. It is a different set of circumstances, right? But now you must put them all away. Here's some other examples. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices. You know, if you get a new pair of shoes, right? Just imagine you get a new pair of shoes, okay? And you love these shoes, right? You paid a decent amount of money for them and you just feel like a new person walking around in your new shoes, all right? So here's the thing. If you're walking through the town or wherever you are in your neighborhood, you're walking on the sidewalk and the place you need to get to is just a block away now, there's a shortcut. You can walk through this giant mud puddle, all right? You can go, yeah, it'll be quicker, right? It's just real muddy, right? You can walk right through it to get to your destination, or, or you can just take a little bit of a detour and just stay on the sidewalk and preserve your nicely new pair of, let's say, pristine white shoes, okay? We'll go with that, all right? Well, guess what? I mean, who in their right mind, if it's not an emergency, if you have all the time in the world, why would you walk through that mud and ruin your new shoes? right? You're not going to do that. Now, my kids do that. They don't care, right? But you, right, are not going to do that. I'm not going to do that. I don't want to waste that money, right? So why walk through the mud of sin if we don't have to? That's what Paul is getting at here. Why go through the mud and the nastiness and the filth of sin in our lives when we've been given the righteous, clean, pure robes of Jesus, why would we want to get those dirty? Theologian David Garland talks about how sin distorts the image of God in us. Now, it doesn't, it doesn't take it away. It just distorts it. 
right? So the Bible tells us very clearly in Genesis 1 that all humans were created in the image of God. So in other words, we have the capability of reflecting the good characteristics of our creator. He designed us that way, right? So we have the capability to show others what God's love is like, to show others what forgiveness is like, to show others, right, what good, pure, uh, moral values are like, right? We can show them these things by the way we live, but Garland says, but who can see Who can see that image in those who misuse their sexuality or who try to destroy others in malicious anger, right? Those are a couple of examples Paul gives. In other words, do you understand, do we realize how much of a bad witness we are for Christ when we engage in sinful things in this world? It really does distort that image, you see, we, listen, if you follow Jesus, if you, really, if you really follow Jesus, whether you realize it or not, you, you may not understand what you've signed up for. You are inherently now a representative of Christ. So you may not think of yourself that way when you're going through the grocery store. You may not think of yourself that way when you're at work. But you represent Jesus Christ everywhere you go. And when we are engaging in any kind of sinful practice, that distorts our witness and we do not reflect the image of God in us as we should. So Christians must take this seriously as image bearers of God and representatives of Jesus. Garland says, we are far more tolerant of sin polluting our lives than we are of bacteria polluting our drinking water. I mean, think about that, right? If you knew that your drinking water was contaminated, you're not going to drink it. But we know, right, when we're tempted to to sin in a particular way, and I mean, look at the examples Paul gives, right? Sexual immorality, anger, malice, slander, talking bad about others, right? When When we're tempted to give in to any kind of temptation in thought, in word, in deed, in any form, in motivation, in your heart, right? When we're tempted to do that, right? We are, it's just amazing how, how, how little we seem to care sometimes about the damaging effects of what this may do to us or someone we love or someone who's watching us in the outside world and knows that we're a Christian. Why would we not take this seriously? Garland continues. He says, the commitment The commitment to get rid of sin cannot be accomplished by gradual degrees and with minor repairs. The whole foundation must be replaced. We have to be able to identify the sin in our life and let the Holy Spirit uproot it. Right? We can't just just mow over the weeds of our heart. They need to be uprooted. In Mark chapter 9, listen to this. I mean, this is strong. I know this is strong, but this is necessary. For Christians, we have to hear this, right? In Mark chapter 9, Jesus himself, look what he says. He says, and if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. In other words, now this is hyperbole, okay? Jesus, he's not literally mean cut off your hand, but he's using that as a metaphor of how serious we must take the sin in our lives. In other words, whatever it 
is that you need to get rid of, get rid of it by all means. So if you have unlimited internet access and you're tempted to look at things you shouldn't look at, then by all means, get an internet blocker or take an hiatus off of whatever you need to get off of. But cut it off. That is what Jesus is saying. We cannot tolerate the sin in our lives and pretend that nothing bad is going to happen. This all makes sense. It makes perfect sense because God hates sin. He's not okay with it. Look at Colossians 3 verse 6 that we just read, right? He says, on account of these, the wrath of God is coming. So in other words, we should agree with God about our sin. And no one said this was easy. Nobody says that this is easy. It's not. This is a real daily struggle for the Christian. But look what Paul says in verse 7. He knows that. Because look what he says. In these you two once walked when you were living in them. So you used to engage in this stuff, but now you have been changed. You belong to Jesus. You used to belong to the world, right? So now you have to keep your mind set on things above, as he said in verses one through four, not devoting yourself to these things of the world. So, so these lists of examples, right? In verse five, and verse eight, and verse nine, these may have been specific sins, that Paul knew uh, the Colossians were struggling with, right? So maybe he had heard like, listen, there's some real issues in this church. These people need to hear this. Or or just things that he knew from his experience as, as a church planter for many years that he knew would be especially challenging for Christians living in an anti-Christian society, right? So either way, right? Either way, it is very clear that God is not okay with our sin. And since we are united to Christ, who had to die because of our sin, and right, I mean, just remember that, right? Next time you're tempted to do whatever, just remember that Christ had to die for your behavior. Right, let me just let that sink in. The next time you are tempted to slander someone, the next time, right, you are tempted to get angry, as Paul said, or treat someone with malice, just remember that God, Jesus Christ, had to die for that. Because all sin must be punished. That's why the wrath of God is coming. All sin, all evil will one day be defeated completely and fully. So Christians, we must take sin in our lives seriously. There's no good reason to engage in any of these lies because that's what they are. We must take a proactive effort to put them to death. The Puritan theologian John Owen has famously, once famously said, we must be killing sin or it will be killing you. Be killing sin or it will be killing you. It's one or the other. Christian author Mark Maynell, he gives practical ways to put sin to death. I want to share some of these with you. This is really good. All right, if you're taking notes, just jot some of this down. All right, first of all, how can we put sin to death in our lives? We have to be self-aware and honest with ourselves. 
right? We have to be self-aware. We've got to be honest about what our struggles actually are. So maybe you've been ignoring it. Maybe you've been kind of hiding it and you think it's not a big deal. You need to be super honest with yourself first about the issues you're struggling with. Number two, we must identify the things that cause us to stumble, right? So what is it in the world that triggers us or tempts us? What is it that is causing us to stumble? Number three, we must, we perhaps need to avoid situations, right? That make it hard to be like Christ, right? So if you're hanging out with a crew, you know, on the weekends and and they're just really dragging you down, right? Maybe you need to separate yourself from that for a season just to not even be tempted to do that, right? We need Christian friends around us to support us, right? We need Christian friends to keep us accountable. That's why we love uh, community groups here at Kernan, right? It provides a space for us to get to know other Christians in our same season of life so that when we are struggling with an issue, we can in confidence and privately uh, seek out a friend, right? Or maybe even a mentor to help us and walk with us through struggles, right? We must pray. We must pray against these specific sins. So what is it that you've identified as a struggle in your life that's repetitive, right? What, what it, maybe it's an addiction of some sort, right? Maybe it's just something that you keep finding yourself you know, you, you keep being quick to anger, right? What is causing that anger inside of you? What's the real idolatrous root in your heart that needs to be uprooted? Pray against that. Ask the Holy Spirit to identify that in your life and uproot it and take it out to perform surgery on you and get that mess out of there, right? We must study the Bible. We have to study the Bible in Christ's character so we can learn how to live for him in specific ways. Maynell says, we do not do this out of fear. We do this out of confidence. We belong to God because we are united with Christ. It is simply a matter of being who we have been saved to be. We must put off the old self. We must eliminate sin in our lives through the power of the Holy Spirit. We must embrace this new identity. And that brings us to the second and last point. The other half of this argument Paul makes in these verses We must put on the new self, right? In other words, we have to practice obedience. So on one hand, we're eliminating sin in our lives, but on the other hand, we must practice proactive obedience. All right, look what he says in verse 10. Colossians 3.10, Paul says, and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. So we have a new self. We are being renewed, Paul says. But how? Well, he says, in knowledge after the image of our creator. So we are being transformed by the Holy Spirit. We are being conformed to the image of Christ over time, right? Remember I said this is progress, not perfection. Over time, being united to Christ, our lives reflect him more and more. We begin to look like him. That's the goal. Over time, you should look and act and think more like Jesus. You know, it's kind of like how people say some married couples start to look like each other over time. Have you heard this, right? Ladies, I'm sorry if that offends any of you. (laughs) But seriously, this is a real thing, sort of. I researched it, okay? (laughs) Listen to this. This is worth sharing with you. Psychology Today, all right, reported that researchers proposed that spouses may converge in facial features through empathic mimicry. 
That is, through empathy for one another, couples may feel similar emotions and make similar facial expressions, leading to similar wrinkles and aging patterns over a long period of time together. (laughs) All right, so basically, don't laugh at the same time. All right, and don't cry at the same time. Okay, you need to keep your emotions separate if you don't want to start looking like each other. All right, now listen, I don't know, I don't know how much of that is true. Okay, but here's what we do know is true. Over time, as you follow Jesus and learn to love him and spend time with him in his word and through prayer, and you practice obeying his teachings, guess what? You will start to conform to his image by the power of the Holy Spirit working in your heart. You will begin to look more like him. You'll start to cultivate his very heart. Think about that. And how good does that sound? And it's so real, it's so true that you can cultivate the heart of Christ in your very life. Don't you want to be like that? This happens by being renewed in knowledge, Paul says, after the image of your creator. He said something similar in Romans 12. He said, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. So this must be a proactive and conscious effort. Theologian D.A. Carson has famously said, I love, this is one of my favorite quotes of all time. He says, people do not drift toward holiness. Apart from grace-driven effort, people do not gravitate toward godliness, prayer, and obedience to Scripture, faith, and delight in the Lord. In other words, what he's saying is, we must be proactive in pursuing the good things of God if we want to look more like Christ. In other words, we can't just sit back. We can't just kick back and relax in our Christian life and never study the Bible and never pray and expect to just magically look more like Jesus in our lives. It ain't going to happen. If you're not learning about Christ and what he loves, if you are not seeking to put to death the remaining sin in your life, We're not going to love the Lord over time. We're not going to look like the Lord over time. This is true for us personally, right, as individuals, but this is also corporately true as a church. This is true for the church as a whole, the whole body of Christ. And that's what Paul's getting at here. Look at verse 11. We're all in this together. He says, here, right, in the church, and this is beautiful, Right, The diversity in the body of Christ. There is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. So the ground at the foot of the cross is level. There is no Christian who is better than the other Christian. We are all adopted by God into his family. We are all seated at the same table. It doesn't matter your background. It doesn't matter your socioeconomic status. It doesn't matter your race. In Jesus Christ, we are all in him together. So what then, what then does this mean? The NIV study Bible says that regeneration through Christ creates a new humanity that is the church. 
a new humanity. Is that what God is doing here? Is that what God is doing on this earth by saving people into his family? He's creating a new humanity. He's creating, he's creating a new people, a new holy race. So what then, what specifically do we do as this new humanity, as the church? How do we live? Paul gives examples of these godly, positive characteristics of God. Look at this, Colossians 3, 12 through 14. He says, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. What kind of love? The love of Christ, a sacrificial love that puts the interest of others before our own. These are Christ-like behaviors that we must proactively pursue. So then he continues, verse 15, He says, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which indeed you were called in one body and be thankful. You see, this is a church-wide responsibility. Putting off the old self, putting on the new self, eliminating sin in our lives, practicing the obedience to Jesus that we need to look more like him over time. Church members of any particular church But here, let's just talk about here at Kernan, right? Church members, we must take our sin seriously because it does affect the whole body. And you may think that what you do in private has nothing to do and doesn't affect anyone else in this room, but in the body of Christ, that is not true. It may be true in other arenas of the world, But in the church, we are united in a spiritual formation that you cannot find anywhere else. And so the body of Christ is dependent on one another in terms of our spiritual holiness as a body. It's like stubbing your toe, right? Don't you just hate that? There's probably nothing I hate more in this world than when I stub my toe, right? Because my whole body feels it. That's just me. I don't know about you, right? But your little pinky toe, you stub it, and guess what? Your whole body's thrown into a panic because it hurts so bad, and you can't even think straight or walk straight. In the body of Christ, whatever it is, how minute you may think it is, how private you think you are, your private sin affects the public body of Jesus Christ. There is a spiritual truth there that you may not grasp. But we must take our sins seriously as church members. It's true. Sin in the body of Christ affects the whole body, whether everybody knows about it or not. But here's the key. Here's the key. Look at this. Look how joyful and uplifting this is. Verse 16, Paul says, let the word of Christ. What do we do about it? What do we do about the sin? We do this. We let the word of Christ dwell in you richly teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. 
Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. That speaks to one of our core values, our second core value here at Kernan. We want to know what the Bible says and means. Why do we want to know what the Bible says and means? Because we believe the Bible is God's authoritative word that tells us how to live in this world, that tells us about himself. Dwelling on God's truth in the Bible will transform you, Paul says. Let it dwell in you richly. You see, and that's how we can truly help one another overcome sin and enjoy our own salvation. If you approach someone about their sin with only your opinions as the basis, I mean, has that ever gone over well? No, right? There's no real foundation for your opinions. You're just playing a tug of war with them, trying to pull them over to the ground of your opinions. But if we are all standing as a church body, if we're all standing on the same ground, so to speak, the Word of God, then there's a clear and a true path to approach someone in love and wisdom. And as people of the truth, the truth of Christ is everything to us. So we're grateful for this opportunity to love one another in this way, to stand on the word of God together. Our gratitude for that is even reflected, Paul says, in our worship service, right? We, the songs we sing today reflect that gratitude of the gospel we have. So gratitude for the gospel, it's what compels us to worship as a lifestyle and corporately as the body. Look what he says, wrapping it up, verse 17. He finishes this, this part, this portion of his letter. He says, and whatever you do, whatever you do, anything in your life, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. In other words, our holiness should be holistic, right? There's no fragment of your life that God is not concerned about. There is no part of your life that maybe you have tried to compartmentalize and push aside as if God's grace should not affect it or touch it, right? There's no private part of your heart that the Lord does not already know about. So step into the light. Step into, step into the truth of His Word. Dwell on His Word richly. Spend time in prayer, eliminating sin and practicing obedience. We must take the sins in every different area of our lives seriously. We must put on and embrace this new identity by proactively studying God's Word, praying frequently and specifically, seeking Christian accountability in the church. It's not easy. But it's possible. God has equipped you. He has given you all the tools and the resources and the people you need in the body of Christ to succeed, to win. Romans 6, 11. I want to close out with a couple of verses here. Paul says, So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. You have to consider it, Right? You have to think of yourself that way. Who are you really? You may believe all kind of lies about yourself from your own heart, from your own sin, from Satan, from the world around you, from the temptations around you. What lies are you believing today about yourself? If you truly love Jesus Christ, you have to wake up every morning and just embrace, embrace 
your real identity. Be who you really are. You are a loved child of God. That's who you are, Christian. So Paul's encouragement, live that way. Show everyone around you that's really who you are. You're not perfect, but you love Jesus. And you're willing and humbly accept the fact that you have to eliminate sin in your life and you have to practice obedience and you find joy in becoming more like Christ. Can we live this way, church? I believe we can. Is Christ enough? Yes. He gives us a new identity.